Good morning, my freaky friends. I am Ella Keel. And I'm Sarah Keel. And welcome to our new podcast, Freaks and Treats, where you get a bi-weekly dose of everything freaky and delicious. Obviously, I'm being the freaky one. I'd say I'm delicious, I'm really not. What, like an apple? Yeah, like golden delicious. <laughs> yes, I'm a little bit crunchy. I think that's my makeup, though. I haven't taken it off from last night. I was actually over at friend and I slept in my makeup, which is ridiculous. Oh, I'm too old to do that. I woke up with like my eyeliner just smeared across my face. I looked like a, a drunken panda that had been shoved around the bushes and given a good time. <laughs> it's not a good look. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's a, a short introduction to it. It's not really a great introduction. Um, so yeah, I am, as I said, I'm Ella and I'm uh, just here to do some freaky anecdotes for you. Some lots of treats and um, lots of stories about random stuff that makes you go, huh? Um, just stuff that confuses us and makes us sort of question humanity, I think. And Sarah is here to feed me because she is the feeder and I'm the fat girl. That's just the way this works. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, I'm sorry. <laughs> it takes me a second. So yeah, we've been saying that we're going to do this podcast for, I don't know, months, months, months and months and months. And it is, what, three days before Christmas? It's a very random time to be doing a podcast and a very even stranger time to be doing a podcast about the subjects that we're going to be doing. But such is life. You can't have the happy without a little freaky. So also, I should also say... Um, if you like the song that you heard, it was by the wonderful and talented Doug Jagger. You can get him on Instagram and Spotify and iTunes as well um, under the name Doug, D-O-U-G and Jagger, like Mick, but with better dancing. Um, and just give him a listen. He's pretty awesome. So with that being said, yes, I'm Pamela and I have many different interests. I go to university interested in religion and serial killers like most people my age I just have a serial interest in the macabre and disgusting and Sarah is oh. <laughs> Sarah is staring at a cat I apologize <laughs> uh I'm Sarah and I am Ella's sister and growing up in a house with Ella it's hard to not be interested in the macabre in the same way that she is well, maybe not quite the same way that she is, but pretty close. I think the most macabre thing about me is my interest in Steve Buscemi, which does violate <laughs> on the strange and unusual. Definitely. Definitely the strange <laughs> and unusual. But he's a nice guy. Like I, I don't know what you're saying. I think he's delicious. <laughs> oh no. Never talk about Steve Buscemi and and delicious in the same sentence. All right, all right. Uh, <laughs> no judgment here. Um, for anyone who does actually love Steve Buscemi, then give me a shout out. Uh, there must be somebody. Someone somewhere. So basically every week on this podcast, we're going to be giving you a little bit of a taster into sort of like sociological issues, political issues, psychological issues, and looking at different cases. Some of them will be contemporary. Some of them will be a little more old. Um, and we'll just basically feed them together. I'll do one case, Sarah will do the other, and we'll just try to find a happy medium and find out why. Why did you do this, humanity? Why? And yeah, that's just where we're going to um, leave it off to our episode for today. But first, we're also going to start off with Sarah's bake of the episode. And I should also say that Sarah's cakes are most of the time pretty amazing except for today apparently i i'm willing to give it another taste <laughs> so yeah 
So today I have made, uh, going with the Christmas theme, gingerbread blondies. And I had some a bag of honeycomb left over, so I'm like, I'm just going to stick some honeycomb on this. So I, I sprinkled it on the top before I baked it, and it looks like the surface of Mars. Um, that's that's wrote, a bit of an insult to Mars. <laughs> oh, the cheek. <laughs> Well, we'll, I, be put, we'll be putting um, photos of this on Instagram, we should also say, so you can yeah, give, I was about to say, give us your own opinions of what you think it looks like. It's a bit, uh, dare I say the word slimy? Slimy? Not good. Yes, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. So I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give yeah. this another go. Yeah. So I should say, when I came, when I came over, Ella gave this a go and she had to run to the bin to spit it out. <laughs> Not a good sign. I was told it was salty. I don't know how it could be salty. There's no salt in it. Okay, right, I'm gonna give it another go. So this is a huge bit. I'm just gonna take a little bit yeah, stop, from the side. Stop taking all the chunks of honeycomb. That's the bit that tastes weird. <laughs> take the cake. <laughs> that sounds like you take the cake. <laughs> that, that takes the cake. Okay, I'll give it another go. See, that bit's actually really good. I don't know what happened with the other bit. I, I don't know if a little bit of salt ended up on the top of it somehow. Maybe it's just my salty personality. That's all it is. <laughs> there we go. I'm just bitter. And you know why I'm bitter? From all these bloody things that we keep researching. I think that's the problem with it. We keep researching things that are just really depressing. Which you I think... read about so much crime before you just get a little bit bitter about the world. Yeah, we should also say it's not just crime. There's a little bit of history in there. There's a little bit of uh, I'd say supernatural. There's just a bit of a mixture of everything. A bit of psychology. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a really good stop step for us to take into our first topic. Sarah, do you want to kind of introduce us because this is really your area you did do the degree in psychology I'm just a novice I did do a degree in psychology and this was actually the first time I took my textbook out from from my uni for the first time in years um and I felt like I'm doing a degree again was it all sticking together when you got the pages it was just like moths flying what, what are you out sticking of it together what do you think I was doing at uni? <laughs> baking obviously <laughs> sugar so what we're talking about today is the topic of social influence. Specifically, we're talking about obedience. A uh, quick background on what I mean by social influence. Uh, basically, it's the process in which attitudes and behaviour are influenced by the real or imagined presence of other people. Uh, so there's three main topics within social influence. And that's conformity, obedience and compliance. These all sound kind of like the say thing, but there's slight difference. So when you say conformity, that's doing things that is adhering to social norms within your group. So essentially it's the, if everybody else is doing it, I'm gonna do it too, kind of thing. Like um, me in high school when I used to smoke. Do you, do you even remember me doing that? I, I remember mum being very angry about it. <laughs> it wasn't just mum, it was dad. I literally came home and I was smoking halfway out of the window. It was horrible. No! Yes, I literally hanging out of the window and I only did it because all the netty girls in school were smoking. I know. That's that's never a good reason to do anything, really. Isn't it? Isn't that what the lesson in this in this is? It's basically saying, do what other people tell you to do. Absolutely, of course. <laughs> By the way, we're just also saying that's a complete joke. Complete fabrication. We are not at all saying that. Sarah? Yeah, so that is a very good example of conformity. Or like joining in to make fun of someone because everybody else is doing it, which assumedly is something I did in school. Um, and you made fun of other people? Not much. Um, it was literally just 
or laughing along, I guess, is maybe the thing. More, more yeah, I think that's more like bystander apathy, isn't it? Hmm. And that's another topic we could get into one day. Oh, I will. There is another episode I really want to cover on bystander apathy. But yeah, I understand what it is. I think in some ways we're all kind of, uh, maybe not all of us, but certainly some of us, particularly people that are in weaker positions, like you or I, where we were bullied in high school quite a lot. I think we try to refrain from being bullied ourselves. So we essentially laugh along with others who are picking on others to try and save ourselves in the moment because we know people are going to pick on us later. Exactly. So... Fine. Not, not, and I'm also not excusing the behaviour of me, of me and Sarah from our high school days. But yeah, I think no, when do, you're do as we say, not as we do. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely one of those things that we, if you are like a high school student that happens to be listening to this, do not go along with what everyone's doing or saying, and and, and then say that well, it was just part of conformity. We had to do it. No, you've always got a choice. It's just about being rational about it and thinking about it. And Sorry. That is your PSA for the episode. Sorry. Um, that was a bit luxury. And a bit of a tangent because this episode is on obedience, not conformity. I apologise. Sorry. Obedience. No, it's okay. Uh, so when we say obedience, that means you're following a direct order from someone you perceive to be an authority figure, like your employer or a police officer. Uh, compliance, on the other hand, is doing something in response to a request. So this person generally doesn't have any authority over you. So like... Somebody in the street uh, stops you and asks you to do a survey and you say, yeah, sure, that would be compliance. A police officer, on the other hand, stops you in the street and says they have to ask you some questions. That's more likely to be obedience because of the element of authority involved. Mm -hmm. But the similarity in all of these is that they can make you do things that you wouldn't normally do, things you wouldn't have chosen to do on your own, things you perhaps disagree with morally. And as we're going to talk about, it could even cause you to harm other people. What about the wearing of Crocs? I totally (laughs) and morally am am completely against that. And that, I think, affects other people as well. People people have to look at Crocs. They're disgusting. You know what? I guess that is an example of me. I wear Crocs in work, and I guess that's conformity. Or is it obedience? Because my boss bought us all Crocs to wear in work. I, I don't know if that is that obedience or conformity. Well, it depends. Is she going to fire you for not wearing the Crocs? No. Well, then it's probably more compliance than obedience. Mm. Interesting. Oh, yeah. I've been saying, I, I apologise. I said um, conformity said conformity. compliance. Yeah. Because there is a difference. We should say between uh, conformity and compliance. Yeah. yeah. Basically, conformity says that you will do the the act, but morally inside you'll be going, this is absolute bullshit. Whereas conformity, did I... Conformity, yeah, that would be compliance. That's compliance and conformity is the the exact opposite. You're doing, well, it's not the opposite, but essentially you're doing the act and you're changing your belief system in order to fit the social norms of that group. I don't think it always involves in changing the belief system, but it definitely can. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. So does that lead us into? that, That leads us into what I wanted to cover today, which is the Milgram obedience experiment. Yeah, because I do remember the Milgram experiment because I did psychology for higher years as well. And yeah, I everyone do... who's studied any psychology knows, knows the Milgram <laughs> experiment. But it's been such a long time since high school and I'm not going to say how many years. You can just guess by my voice that I'm a little bit older. Um, so I remember little aspects of it, but I don't remember the details. So it'll be interesting to revisit it and then sort of analyse it from a different point of view yeah get any new information about it yeah exactly so as i mentioned it's a very well-known and pretty controversial study uh, done in the 1960s 
So I wanted to dive a little into the theory that came about, that resulted from it, and also go into the ethical side of the study itself, because it's a bit questionable. Uh, so the idea behind the study was asking, how far will people go in obeying an instruction when it involves harming another person? So a little bit of background on uh, Stanley Milgram. He was born in 1933 in the Bronx in New York. He was born to Jewish parents. His mother and father had left Europe, uh, Romania and hung Hungary respectively, uh, during World War I and they came over to the US. Uh, being from a Jewish family during that time period, his relatives were obviously all very deeply, deeply affected by the Holocaust. Mm. Even living in New York, you know, his parents still had lots of family in Europe, so they're they're you know, they're they're keeping an eye on the news and seeing what's going on. Um, so they're very, very aware of what was going on, very affected by it. Um, and after the war ended, he had relatives from Europe stay with his family in New York who had survived Nazi concentration camps. Mm. And hearing what they had gone through during the war really, really stuck with Stanley to the point that his bar mitzvah speech was about the impact of World War II on the Jewish community and what European Jews had gone through. Wow. He had such an interest in it that it would then carry on into his academic life and into the experiment we're going to get into. So fast forward a little. He graduates from, uh, he graduates with a bachelor's in kittiness. Excuse me? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I, I just realised she was reacting to my cat. <laughs> if you ever hear a, a gentle meow, it's either my cat or just my stomach. Yes, Mowgli graduated with a bachelor's in cuteness. <laughs> and I, uh, I've graduated with a bachelor's in absurdity. Year ago. Stanley, on the other hand, graduated with a bachelor's in political science from Queen's College and then a PhD in social psychology from Harvard. And then fancy. I know, very fancy. And then in 1960, he became an assistant professor at Yale. And there's where we get into the meat. I don't know why I said meat like that. The, the meat. meat. <laughs> the meat. Sorry the for meat. offending any vegans. <laughs> So as I said, Milgram was very interested in the actions of the Nazis during World War II. Around this time, uh, Adolf Eichmann, so he was a high-ranking Nazi officer, he was arrested and stood trial for his crimes during the war. Uh, he was one of the major organisers of the Holocaust. Um, he was in charge of the logistics of deporting millions of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps. Uh, during his trial, he tried to make the argument that he never killed anyone himself or signed any death orders. He was simply doing as he was told and being loyal to the fatherland, merely a cog in the machine. Ah, another callback to obedience. Yes, and a complete cop-out because he once reportedly said, having the death of five million Jews on my conscience gives me extraordinary satisfaction. But sure, yeah, yeah, you're you're clearly just a cog in the machine, totally just following orders. Yeah, you totally don't so, enjoy that at all. I think absolutely that, believe it. There was a, there was another woman who um was involved in the concentration camps, a woman as well, and she had a very sort of um particular take on that as well. She tried to say that it was she was just following orders, but she was known as one of the most vicious women in Auschwitz. Um, I'll need to for anybody who does know her name, just sort of give it a wee Google. You'll probably know her. Um, I'll research it later. But yeah, um, if you research her, she was one of these ones that was very much in charge of Auschwitz um, too, and would literally take satisfaction in torturing people. And yet she still afterwards said, "Nothing to do with me. I was just following orders." Mm -hmm. 
What's that? What's that over there? Doing the shaggy defense. It wasn't me. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was a way to start making a song, but considering the topic, <laughs> yeah, maybe not the best. Yeah, perhaps not. <laughs> um, so what Eitman said was actually pretty similar to some of the defenses seen in the Nuremberg trials, the military trials that took place just after World War II. Uh, the people indicted in this were very high-level officials, like the secretary of the Nazi party and head of the Gestapo. So kind of the worst of the worst. Mm. Many of these people also tried to use the defense of just following orders, saying it's not their place to question, it's their place to obey. Uh, many of these people also tried to use the defense of just following orders. It's not their place to question, it's their place to obey. Didn't work, of course, because of their high levels and also just how atrocious the crimes were, but they did try it. And all this got Milgram wondering, sorry, um, it's reminding me, the way I said that sorry is just reminding me of um, Carrie Bradshaw a little bit. <laughs> I love the connection there. Um, just the, Sex in the City, Milgram experiment. It's just, it just making me think, I couldn't help but wonder. <laughs> Are you saying that Milgram was just literally typing there, I couldn't help but wonder, are all people really... No, actually, I, I, I keep going to say a really disgusting joke because I can't. It's horrible. Keep going. Milgram couldn't help but wonder <laughs> how far will people go because they're following orders? How atrocious an act will they commit because a superior told them to? Mm. Could that explain, at least in part, the sheer scale of what happened in the Holocaust and how so many seemingly ordinary people were willing to commit such atrocities. Mm. And what he said was, great quote, could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? So you really think that this kind of ideology that he set for a separation of guilt is kind of what fed into his experiments that we're going to talk about? This is exactly the premise for his experiment. No. This led to... It wasn't me. It, the, the, it wasn't the experiment. If, if, if any social experiment was to have a theme tune, I never thought it would be shaggy. <laughs> <laughs> so this leads us to the experiment. Milgram did conduct a lot of variations of this, which I'll get into in a bit, but for now I'll just explain the version that's most well known. Mm -hmm. So he recruited via a newspaper ad for males aged between 20 and 50, uh, from a range of various professions, businessmen, labourers, salespeople, the lot. And they were paid $4.50 for an hour's participation and were told it was a study on memory and learning. In fact, they actually said it was about the effect of punishment on learning. Right, okay. So you've got three people. You've got the experimenter, wearing a lab coat, very official, and he's in charge of the session. Uh, you've got the learner and you've got the teacher, and the teacher's your volunteer. Okay. The teacher and the learner turn up at the same time and they'll draw straws as to who would take each role. So they're taken into a room and the learner is strapped into what appears to be an electric chair. And they're strapped in with nylon straps uh, to avoid excessive movement. And they have an electrode attached to the wrist and then they've got electrode paste applied to prevent any blisters or burns. Uh, the experimenter will also point out that the electrode is connected to the shock generator in the next room. And this whole process is done in full view of the teacher with full explanations, just like I've given there. Okay. Uh, the teacher was then allowed to try a sample electric shock uh, so that they knew what it would feel like for the learner. Mm -hmm. Then the teacher is taken into a separate room so he can't see the learner, but he can still hear him. Mm -hmm. Then the experiment begins. And basically, the basis is that the teacher is given a list of word pairs that he has to teach the learner 
Then, so you would read out the first word of a pair and read four possible answers. And the learner would press a button to show his answer. And if they got it right, great, move on to the next words. If they got it wrong, the teacher was meant to press a button to give the learner an electric shock. Each time they got the answer wrong, the shocks would increase in 15 volt increments. So if the learner gets it wrong, they're supposed to increase the voltage, announce what the voltage is they're using, and then shock them. And this started at 15 and went all the way up to 450 volts. Jeez, so how much is that? I mean, for reference, 500 volts can cause internal burns. Internal burns? Internal burns, oh, right? Oh, God. And the scale was labelled for the teacher, so it said slight shock at 15, and it went up to danger severe shock at 375. Jeez. And then 450 was labelled XXX. Basically saying, this is as high as this thing goes, don't go there. Jeez. It actually kind of reminds me, um, back in my sort of teen years, we used to go to this arcade, me and my friends, and it had this machine where it had sort of like two... I guess metal stumps that you put your hands on and it was literally like an electric machine that you put your hands on to see how much withstanding of electric you could take. Now, I'm not, I don't think it was, I know this <laughs> sounds barbaric. What sort of place would have this? Where, where are you getting these things as a child? I had a rough childhood, okay? No, I honestly, I think it was more vibrating than it was actual electroshock, okay. but it, it felt like electroshock because it would shake and shake and shake and then it felt like you were being electrocuted. So if that was harsh, I can't imagine what this would be doing to people. So this was literally saying, don't go there, but people have, I'm assuming. We'll get there. I'm impatient. <laughs> so if you're thinking, how can they be allowed to do this? How can they be allowed to shock people in an experiment? Fortunately, they're not. I'm sure I didn't fool anyone. The learner is not actually a participant. The only real participant here is the teacher. Mm -hmm. The learner is a plant, he's an audit, he's not actually receiving any electric shocks. Were he not? The drawing shows to decide on rules was fixed, so the participant will always be the teacher. So when the shock gets to 75 volts, the learner would start to cry out in pain. Um, scripted, of course. This is usually when the teacher becomes unsure and will look to the experimenter to see if they should go on. Here, the experimenter has a sequence of four verbal prods to get them to continue. Please continue or please go on. The experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. And you have no other choice. You must go on. So I think so that sort of thing, from what I'm taking from that, there's a kind of line between compliance and obedience because compliance would say, well, you kind of, we insist that you go on or you should go on. It's a, well, we don't have to go on because it's not an authority telling us what we have to. It's not a yes or a no. But if it's saying you must continue, it's an immediate sort of, well, this is an authority. It's telling me, yes, you have to do this. It's not an optional thing. Therefore, that verges into the line of obedience, doesn't it? So it, in Milgram's view, it's all meant to be obedience, but a major criticism is that is it actually obedience or mm. is it compliance? That's a very good point. Uh, keep that in mind because I'm going to go into that a little bit later. Ooh, debate. Debate. So they would go through these prompts in order, and if the teacher still refuses to continue after the fourth prompt, the experiment would be stopped. Um, they also had two additional prompts that they would be given if the teacher asked something specific. Although the shocks may be painful, there is no permanent tissue damage, so please go on. And whether the learner likes it or not, you must go on until he has learned all the word pairs correctly, so please go on. 
it's mildly mm. terrifying sounding yeah it's giving me so many references again back to the sort of like nazi concentration camps of mm. this is the only way they they must have this done because that is how they'll learn yeah essentially yeah and i imagine that's probably where he was getting a little of that from when he was creating these oh this is deeply upsetting continue <laughs> uh so if the teacher doesn't refuse um, the, the experiment will continue until they reach the full 450 volts. So at 75 volts is when the learner will start crying out. Uh, and these responses from the learner are all rehearsed and standardised as well. And it starts off pretty innocuous with the like, ouch! But the intensity increases as the voltage does. At, five, at 150 volts, the learner will start yelling and demand to be let out of the experiment. Mm-hmm. At 300 volts, he'll start banging on the walls so the subject can hear. And this is also when he'll stop pressing the button to answer and he'll go quiet. So the teacher hears no responses or answers from him. And they'll be told by the experimenter to take the silence as a wrong answer and administer another shock. <sighs> so imagine what imagine what the teacher is feeling at this point, what they're hearing. They're just they're, seeing someone literally being tortured and then well, being responsible. Not seeing. Well, hearing, hearing. Hearing someone being tortured and then thinking, and then, I'm responsible for that. Yeah, and then they hear silence. What do you think that makes them think? Like He's taking a break to console himself? <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's, he's having a snack. <laughs> he's lost the power of voice or speech. No, you would immediately think the worst, wouldn't you? You would think, oh crap, I've just killed someone. Absolutely. Or, at the ver- at very or least, words to that effect. At the very least, he's unconscious. Yeah, exactly. What I'm... I'm going to let you hear an example of what the learner sounded like in one of these experiments. Okay. Um, This is from a YouTube clip I watched that showed the experiment being carried out. So, get me out of here. I told you I had heart trouble. My heart's starting to bother me now. Get me out of here, please. My heart's starting to bother me. I refuse to go out. Let me out. I'm sorry, so was that the teacher saying that? That Let me out. That was the learner. That was the learner, okay. That was the learner saying that. So that's his prompt to... That's his uh, planned response when it gets to a certain point. Just to make the teacher feel more guilty and then say, right. Yeah, to see how far they'll go, even though they know the person's in pain. Yeah. Or to their view. I mean, they know they're in pain. I'm sorry to say, but this, I mean, I know this has been said before, it's just so highly unethical. I mean, despite the fact that it's not actually real physical harm that's happening to the person, the psychological effects this would have on someone who, the teacher, the ramifications of this have just got to be astronomical. They've got to literally be left a feeling afterwards, like, how could I let this happen? How could I have been capable of doing this to someone? What kind of person am I? How, I mean, I think this goes back into sort of like other, other social experiments that happened around about this time as well, especially the one in the, um, the 70s with the Stanford Prison Experiment. If you've not looked at that one, that is also a highly interesting one to suggest you look at. Fun and fact, Zimbardo is at, was actually a classmate of Milgram's. Of course he was. Of course he was. All the unethical shit bags together. But it was, it's just so disturbing to hear these sort of things happening. I mean, I think that it's why we have so many regulations nowadays about experiments and it's stuff exactly and exactly why we have so many regulations about experiments and after this thank goodness for that honestly so mm. disturbing mm. do you know what this kind of reminds me of actually though and it makes me wonder about how the sort of like different results 
and re reactions that the teachers were having to this it reminds me of a movie it was a horror movie called would you rather and it's on netflix and it's a really good one i suggest you sort of give it a watch if you're into horror movies um and it's about a game of you know would you rather do this or that and there's a one scene where they're in a group and they're all fighting for money trying to say would you rather electrocute yourself or electrocute the person next to you now, most people were sitting there going, well, look, let's look around who's around the table. There's an old woman, there's a person in a chair, all these sort of things, you know, do we electrocute them or do we electrocute ourselves? And most people tried to take one for the team and took one an electrocution for themselves to try and spare the other. And it got to the old woman so that the man went, right, I'll make sure I electrocute myself. The girl next to you is also going to electrocute yourself, saying this to the old woman, so you don't get electrocuted because obviously your heart probably won't handle it. And he electrocuted himself. And then when it got to the other girl, she, without thinking, electrocutes the old woman rather than electrocuting herself. Just showing that kind of, I mean, obviously there was monetary influences there, but it shows you, I guess, the lack of empathy that some people have, that they wouldn't even think twice about causing suffering to other person if it meant inflicting it to themselves. Now, again, again this is very different to the Milgram experiment, the teacher is not in danger of causing harm to himself, but I think it's just a shows the lack of empathy and how that can affect different people in these kind of experiments. Mm, completely. And um, again, we're going to get into this in a bit of analysis after I'm done. Yeah. Could uh, you do complaining. it? Could you electrocute someone? I don't think so. I could. Depends on who it was. <laughs> what was this about empathy? I don't have it. No, I do, I do have empathy. You have too much empathy. I have too much empathy apart from people who are really just horrible. I'm not naming names at former presidents or, you know, prime ministers or anyone in a position of power that I think needs to be put in their place. But you can kind of guess where I stand on that. I don't think I would actually electrocute someone, but... God, it would be tempting if you were faced with them. Oh, wouldn't it? Just to have that little bit of power. We are really not coming across well now. <laughs> but it's bad people. It's all right. It's that justified. It doesn't make it even remotely okay, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> we should also say, even if you think it's justifiable to hurt another person, it's probably not. No, it's not. Never helps, does it? Uh, I did have another clip to show you, and we went on a massive tangent. That's fine. Um, where was it? Um, this is footage of the learner getting a shock and their reaction to it. Again, remember, this is a scripted, he's not actually getting shocked. 330 volts. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Why are you high five Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. Excellent. Fine. This is going to sound like a horrible thing to say, but I can hear him acting. Yeah. Can you not? Yeah. The, the scream sounds real, but it's when he goes, let me out of here. Damn it now. You do this right now. It does gosh, sound... Gosh, but darn it. Let me out of this room. <laughs> you tried to say that the electrocution participant was Neff Landers. Gosh, <laughs> darn, flang it. Good golly gosh, let me out of this room. Good golly gosh. You, you sound more like Willy Wonka now. Oh, God. I was about to say, but Charlie and the Chocolate Factory just took a weird turn. <laughs> As yeah. if it wasn't weird enough. Mm -hmm. So so that's an example of what the participant would be hearing on the other side when they think that they've shot the person. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of grim. The participant, they're supposed to think that they're in pain and then unconscious or potentially worse. Mm -hmm. 
So if the teacher got to the end and administered the 450 volt shock, they would then be asked twice more to repeat the shock. And then after that, the experiment would be stopped. And then, then at the end, the teacher would be asked on a scale of one to 14, how painful do you think the last few shocks you administered were? Then, they would, then this is when they would bring the learner back in and give the participant a full debrief where they would explain everything to them so they're made fully aware they didn't actually hurt anyone. So what they found, hopefully you would expect that not many people would go very far in shocking people. Um, prior to the study, Milgram asked a group of psychiatrists to predict how far this, the average subject would go. And they predicted the subject would quit around 150 volts, which is when the learner starts to protest and asks to be let out. Milgram himself didn't expect them to go further than that either. He thought they would stop fairly quickly. And then his plan was to go to Germany and replicate the study to find out if German people were likely to go further in the shocks than Americans did. Well, I suppose Germany would be the place to go to for him, wouldn't it? Yeah, of course it would. Um, but that was his sort of raison d'etre. He wanted to explain what the Nazis did, and he was wondering, are the Germans maybe more likely, and that's why the Nazis did what they did. Uh, it turned out he didn't have to go to Germany. In this version of the study, 65% were fully obedient and went all the way up to 450 volts. Gosh, that is more than I thought. I know, right? Which like, is quite scary. 65%. A majority. That's, that's yeah. Gosh. Now you're totally thinking, what is wrong with these people? They're horrible. Why have they done this? But. But. Worth making clear, the participants didn't enjoy what they were doing. Mm. caused a lot of distress in them. There was trembling, sweating, stuttering, nervous laughter, they were biting their nails, digging their fingernails into the palms of their hands. Three participants had uncontrollable seizures. Mm. Milgram himself uh, described a businessman as turning into a twitching, stuttering wreck. <laughs> so it's not like he happened to just get a bunch of sadists in his lab who were like, yes, I get to shock people. <laughs> I was about to say, what's your name? Desad? Desad? Got that? That's great. They are just ordinary people. They don't want to cause pain. But they did. Because a man in a lab coat told them to. Mm-hmm. Question is, why did they keep following instructions if they didn't want to do it? Because they like a nice man in a coat. <laughs> it was a nice coat, okay? Yes, I'll do anything for a coat. What can I say? So Milgram had a few ideas about this and came up with the agency theory. He suggested that people have two states of behaviour when in a social situation. There's the autonomous state, where people direct their own actions and they take responsibility for said actions. Then there's the agentic state, where people allow others to direct their actions and pass the responsibility for them onto the person who gave the order, essentially acting as an agent for the other person's will. And there are two things that have to be in place for a person to enter that agentic state. The person giving the orders is perceived as qualified to direct other people's behaviour, so they're legitimate, they have some sort of authority. The person taking orders believes that the authority will accept responsibility for what happens. And we saw this happening in the study. The participant saw the experimenter as qualified to give orders in the situation and saw them as some sort of authority figure. They also believed that the experimenter would take responsibility for what happened to the learner with the electric shocks. Mm. In the YouTube clip I mentioned earlier that I saw, there's, and there's transcripts of this as well, the participant, the participant asked a couple of times who was going to take responsibility and asked the experimenter to confirm that they will take responsibility. 
And when the experimenter says, yes, we take responsibility for it, he will continue. Mm. This is a very interesting element of yeah. we'll do something bad if you know that you won't be held responsible for Yeah, it. there's there's definitely an element, I think especially in the case that I'm also going to discuss as well, which I actually can't wait to get into, especially when you talk about giving the power over to someone who might just based on the image alone like the image of wearing a coat the image of wearing a, a you know an officer's uniform something like that or even just the word of it even just by saying that you are something i'm a doctor i'm a police officer i'm a you know i'm, I'm someone of higher learning or position in you that tells you what to do alleviates some of the guilt in some sort of ways or responsibility because you're saying well they were the ones giving me the orders exactly because they were they were supposed to know better exactly so this was just one version that milgram did of this study he actually did 18 versions of the experiment with small changes to see what effects it would have and i'll go through a couple of the most interesting ones in the two teacher condition there was an extra person involved um the participant saw them as another participant but again they were a plant just like the learner was um, the participant would instruct the other person to press the stop switch. So they weren't pressing it, they were telling the other person to do it. 92.5% went up to the maximum 450 volts here. They're not the one doing it, so they feel less responsible. Mm -hmm. This very much ties into the agency theory. The lack of personal responsibility made them far less hesitant to do the jocks. Um, and you could link that back to the Holocaust again with the higher ups who carried out the death orders but didn't do the action themselves. Um, the touch proximity condition, the teacher would have to force the learner's hand down onto a shock plate when they refused to participate. And obedience here fell down to 30%. So when it's like when they can see the consequences face to face, they're more likely to take responsibility for it and less likely to carry out the action. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there's also an element of having to physically force them that had an effect. I'm wondering, um, and it's, this isn't about obedience, but it kind of reminds me of like social media, how people will say terrible things online, but will never say it to your face. Yeah, because it's a lack of responsibility. Exactly. Hiding behind a guise of some variety. Yeah, you feel like you, you, you feel somewhat more responsible. You feel more responsibility for it if, and feel more held accountable for it if you're in person. Mm -hmm. And if the person is... I don't even, I was about to say, even if the part person is reacting against, but a lot of people don't feel responsible for causing pain through Twitter. I mean, yeah, they don't. Because it's, it's real. Yes. It's not a really a, a good sort of sign for us if we plan on putting this on Twitter, by the way. Please be nice to us. We're just simple sisters, just trying to make our living in the world. And I'm a sensitive soul. You can't be mean to me. I can be mean to her. <laughs> Questionable. <laughs> So there was another condition that was the social support condition. And there were two additional participants who were also in the teacher role, again, plants by the experimenter. They refused to obey. One refused at 150 volts and the other at 210 volts. This reduced the obedience down to 10%. So the effect here was huge. So mm -hmm. the experimenter was asking them to continue after the other people said no, and only 10% did. It's like seeing others disobey an authority figure makes people more likely to do the same. Yeah, which again kind of leads into conformity, doesn't it? It exactly ties into conformity. When someone else makes the first step to do something out of the norm, it's like it gives other people courage to do the same. Do you know what sound effect is really coming to mind when I hear this? Meh. 
Meh. Basically saying people are sheep. That's that's all this is. People follow the herd. They're lemmings. If they're going to fall off the, the cliff, I'm going to do it too. But I suppose it's, in this case, it is a good thing because they were literally willing to resist authority because other people were doing it first. So I, I, I kind of it is a good thing and a bad thing, I guess, in some in some respects. Uh, and one more. In the absent experimenter condition, the experimenter instructed in front of the teacher over the phone from another room. And this made obedience fall down to 20.5%. So suggestion is that it's easier to disobey others if they aren't close by in the room with you. Um, many of the participants cheated on and missed stops out or gave a lower voltage than they were ordered to. Mm -hmm. They were more likely to disobey the authority figure and wouldn't go as far in the shocks, which I find interesting that yeah again it's an accountability thing and but yeah not following orders as much if they're not looking at you um and i'm wondering if that's something that might tie into your case a little bit when we eventually get to when it, we yeah. eventually get there <laughs> okay. i apologize no it's fine you, you you told a psychology nerd to, to talk about milgram i know i know wait till we start talking about something like anthropological or religion that's when you'll really see me go off on a tangent oh we'll be here for days uh-huh let's talk about orientalism okay <laughs> sorry you go uh so criticism there's been a lot of it of milgram's study uh particularly in terms of the ethics to put it simply the study is unethical as all hell to the point that you couldn't replicate it today. You wouldn't yeah. be allowed. Reason being, you can't do experiments that put participants in significant distress. You can't do it's, it. It's like doing a social experiment, putting people into a room and forcing them to watch Love Island. I mean, it just can't be done. It's unethical. Well, that's, I'm not... well, that's way worse than electric shops. Says the girl who actually watches it. Yeah, and it feels like electric shops. Why? Why do you watch it then? Is it conformity? Are you conforming because other people are watching it? Maybe. Oh, I'm sorry. You tried to get me to watch one episode, and I'm sorry for anyone who does watch this or who anyone, if they're listening, is on Love Island. But my God, just get a brain. Seriously, just I'm just educate yourself a little bit. There's more to life than lip fillers and fake tan. There is. Uh, I, I heard about it somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't know. But yeah, you can put people in distress for an experiment. Uh, protection of participants is one of the required elements of any study you do. And it was very distressing for them. There's a trembling and sweating. And also, as you said, like a lot of internal conflict, even after the study is over. Like, how could I have done this? Mm -hmm. What did I do? Milgram did argue that the effects were short term. Stress decreased after they were debriefed, and after interviewing them a year after the event, most claim claimed they were happy to have taken part. I would debate that whether are they just are they actually happy to have taken part, or are they just saying that to keep Milgram happy? That's a very good point. Yeah, you know, and the demand characteristics thing of you want to please the experimenter. It's like sex in a way. No. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, I realise this is... That's a little questionable. <laughs> no, but like, so I'm sorry for other people like having sex and then they sit there and go, well, sure, I enjoyed myself. Yeah, I'm just happy to participate. And then yeah. how many people are just doing it to please the other partner? Yeah. I did things that 
not that I did things. I'm saying the person does things that they wouldn't necessarily do with another partner to please the other person. And then they say they enjoy it afterwards. You be quiet. I don't do anything. I'm a virgin. Thank you very much. But other people who do partook in sexual exploits um, will those, do... Those heathens that have... Uh... Don't slag off the heathens. Thank you very much. I'm talking, talking about the people who partake in fornication. They do acts for the other partner that they don't necessarily... And not necessarily morally agree with, but they just don't abide by. They don't, they wouldn't necessarily they do. Do, they wouldn't do it if um, the person hadn't asked them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's that compliance. Sexual compliance, there is a topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So another issue is the, the element of deception in Milgram's study. They thought they were doing a memory study, not one of obedience. We love informed consent in psychology. It's a big buzzword. And you can argue there isn't any informed consent where deception is involved. Um, And standards are that though there can be a little bit of deception, it's only as much as necessary and wherever and only if absolutely necessary and only where it won't cause distress when they find out the truth. And I would debate the, the ethics there because with Milgram, because after the study, some of the participants did react by blaming themselves mm-hmm. and being really harsh on themselves. Just very debatable. But I, I, I just blame you. I was like, Sarah made yeah, me do it's it. All, it's all my fault. She's the smarter one. I was just doing what I was told. I don't have a brain. If I only had a brain. Pardon me. I would shock the other people. Oh, no. <laughs> but yeah it's one of those debates like is the distress worth it for furthering research and knowledge and i guess that can be like a matter of opinion can't it but well i mean i have my particular own um, moral code and ethical code when it comes to experiments particularly on animals and stuff like that so i think there needs to be a sort of limit if we're going to do it with um, humans we should probably do the same thing with animal testing as well there should be an ethical code with that as well but that's a completely different topic I feel like it's, if there's distress involved, like is if that much distress, especially as far as I'm concerned, not worth it. Nah. No. And as far as the British Psychological Society is concerned, also nah. Throw it in. Yeah. But lastly, one of the most important things in any study is for participants to have the right to withdraw at any point without feeling pressure to continue if they don't want to. Large part of Milgram's study method here is pressuring participants to keep going when they don't want to. Like, how do you, how do you make that okay? So that's kind of like um, coercion in a way, isn't it? Mm. They're basically coercing people into participating into an unethical study that um, makes them question their own um, morality and... Exactly. Yeah, that's... Oh no, what a naughty... He's a very naughty man. I don't like him, no, no. What a naughty, naughty man. He's not a psychologist, he's a very naughty boy. <laughs> he's not a psychologist, he's a very naughty boy. He is the messiah. Sorry. <laughs> Going off enough. Yeah, a lot of things that give people pause about this study. So it's good to know the form, it, that study in the form it was in, wouldn't get past any ethics committee today at all. No. The downside of it not being allowed is that it makes it difficult to do research on Milgram's idea and apply it to current society. But there has been a little bit of research that's adapted it for other contexts and tried to adapt the ethics to make it acceptable. Um, something of note is that the original study only looked at men. Uh, it makes you wonder, could the outcome be different with women? 
Mm-hmm. Um, turns out Milgram actually looked at that as well. In one of his additional experiments, he used women and he found pretty much the same result with obedience at 65%. But something he did observe himself was that the women seemed more agitated and had higher levels of tension than the men did. And he theorised that they felt higher levels of empathy for the learner, causing more anxiety. And he thought that they may have found it more difficult to defy the experimenter because they were a man. This could be true. Or he could be putting a male bias on it. I was going to say, that's that's got male sort of... That's got male privilege written all over it. Yep. Uh, you'd be expecting more empathy simply because they are women. Well, I think this goes into the idea. I mean, I mean, there are studies that say that women do have slightly more empathy than men, but I mean, it's hard to know if this is completely factual and like yeah, what kind of slants are on it, unfortunately. Yeah. But I think this just reeks, as you said, of um, gender um, stereotyping, yeah. unfortunately. Also, he could have been observing more agitation as he notices it more on a woman than he would on a man the whole women are expected to smile thing you know and men not so much so you know agitation is more acceptable on a man than a woman so you notice it more on a woman have you ever been told that actually just to smile more as a a woman i get to i get told that in like high school called all the time i used to get told you're growling at me and i'm like it's just my natural face i've got resting bitch face i can't this was before resting bitch face was actually a thing i'm like i can't help it i'm just ugly this is just my face and now if people say that i need to smile more i literally do that sort of um grimace that you know showing every single one of my teeth (laughs) like i'm like i'm about to eat them i'm like i'm smiling (laughs) see how pretty i am are you happy now (laughs) Yeah, so if you if anyone ever tells you that, just grimace and then just just show them every single tooth in your mouth, and also make sure you eat lots of spinach beforehand. It'll stick in your teeth, and they'll love it. If if you've ever seen the Emperor's New Groove, and there's a bit where she has like spinach, Isma has spinach stuck in her teeth. Ah, yeah, (laughs) my spinach puffs. (laughs) And Kuzo's like, God, how long has that been there? Um, just as you mentioned the resting bitch face though, it's interesting. Resting bitch face. There's no there's no male equivalent. There's no resting dick face. <laughs> I, I know a few men who've got resting dick face. <laughs> but, but it's not a phrase people say, is it? We should make it a phrase. Resting dick face. Hang on though, does that mean that we look like an actual a dickhead? Yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I think it's a different thing. I think we're going into sort of like gender issues here, which could be a Well, we're always going to go into gender issues. Mm-hmm. But there especially is a, Yeah, but I think that is a big issue, unfortunately, is especially in these sort of experiments, is looking at the slant of these sort of things. Always take these kind of slants into consideration. Even when I'm doing like sort of my academic studies, when I'm looking at uh, journals and stuff, you always have to be aware of what kind of background the writer has to try and find out what their viewpoint is going to take to look for biases. And I would definitely say that's the case with, I mean, I would say that's the case with Milgram, but I mean, it's already riddled with problems of, an, of <laughs> unethicalness. So... Uh, there's another uh, study that was based on Milgram's that, uh, done in 2009 by a, n- a man named Jerry Berger. Berger? Berger. <laughs> are, are we back to Sex in the City? His name is Berger? No, that, that, no, that was just an E. This is literally with a U. Oh. the burger that you eat. Tasty. <laughs> so Jerry Berger mm-hmm. did a partial recreation to get around the ethical issues. So he stopped the voltage shocks at 150. And then he asked participants if they were willing to continue, at which point they would stop the experiment. 
and 70% were willing to continue. Um, the reason he did this was he'd observed in the original study, 79% of subjects who continued after 150 also continued up to 450. So his assumption was that that would still be true today. And if it was, it would mean that up to 70% of participants were willing to give 450 votes. Whether this is valid or is debatable, we don't know for sure that all or even most who went past 150 would go to 450. They might go to 150 and then stop at like 200. We don't know for sure. But 70% went up to 150, at which, which, which is still interesting in itself because they're still giving pain. They're still giving signals yeah. of pain even then. Do you know what I'm just realising? I mean, I know I should have realised this before, but you really were a psychology student. It's all oh, data. Yes. It's all data it in my brain data. hurts. This is pretty I, sh I should say for our next episode, where we'll be covering my topic, as we plan to do in this episode, um, there is... Less stats involved. There's less stats, but it's definitely going to um, raise a few questions between people and make you go, what the actual duck? What is going on? <laughs> So this smorgasbord of ethical issues are all derived from the report that Milgram sent to print. He may not have been entirely truthful about everything in that report. So an Australian psychologist named Gina Perry was doing research for her book that she released in 2013, and she stumbled across hundreds of audio tapes in the Yale archives from Milgram's studies, and she noticed some real issues in the data. Obviously, this doesn't invalidate the findings of any recreations of Milgram's study, um, because they presumably followed the written method the way it was meant to be done, but interesting to note nonetheless. So Perry conducted interviews with participants from Milgram's studies. Um, and here's some things that she said. Uh, some of the teachers actually knew the study was a hoax and that there was no electric shocks happening. Hmm. Obviously a pretty big issue. Yeah, because, if that is true. Yeah, because if they know it's fake, of course they're more likely to keep going. Yeah. Uh, she also suggests that Contrary to that full debrief that Milgram claims to give to participants, it actually consisted of the researchers calming participants down and sending them home without actually explaining to them what was happening or that the learner was an actor and the shocks weren't real. She claims that some weren't fully debriefed until many months later. Some participants were never told the truth at all. One of the things he was reported to say in this brief to a lot of participants is, you've done a great thing for science. That's what he said to them in the debriefs. Yeah. It's like, great. But cheers. that's, again, that's caressing their ego. Yeah, but also, but also it's like, great, that makes me feel totally better about potentially having killed someone. Yeah, because he's trying to rationalise it. It's, he's trying to rationalise someone's immoral behaviour mm -hmm. by saying, you did us. It's essentially, it's not even, to, it's, it's taking, like, as you said, the responsibility away from them. Yeah. Giving them also almost an excuse for a reason for having done it mm -hmm. and also a reason for him doing all of this and yeah exactly he's hiding behind he's, he's hiding behind science and they're hiding behind him exactly uh something else to mention is that the experimenters used a script in their prods for the teachers a lot of them went off script um which is obviously a massive issue uh perry believes that some participants in the program study were coerced and even bullied uh, to continue the study when they wanted to stop Mm -hmm. And that makes you wonder, as we mentioned before, if the study actually measured obedience or did it measure persuasion and submission? Mm. Uh, and my last, last thing I want to get into is, does it actually mean what we think it means? 
this study and any recreations of it can be interpreted as we will naturally tend to obey authority figures regardless of other factors we're slaves to obedience so a lot of issues with Milgram's study um and although it may not hold all the answers to obedience and though it's a little bit questionable it did have some major influence in the psychology sphere and it's inspired many other researchers to branch off into related areas about what makes people obey and what makes people question authority when they see morally questionable acts being committed. So we can give thanks to Milgram for getting that ball rolling. And that is the story of the Milgram Obedience Study. So, well, that was um, quite heavy going for our first episode. <laughs> Apologize, you got the psychology student talking about Milgram. Yeah, I'm assuming if there's lots of psychology people listening to that, you'll be going, yep, I already knew that, or yep, that's really interesting. There is a lot of data to divulge there and to dissect, which is great. I will say with my next episode, um, with our next episode with my case, it's going to be a little less data orientated and a lot more focused on just the sheer why of somebody, somebody could do something that immoral to someone else and it will leave you a little bit questioning the human race so um yeah i mean i did find that really interesting though and i think it's going to ask a lot more questions about the next case that we're going to discuss um so we are making this a two-parter as you can guess because it is an hour in and everyone will be get ready to go and get their tea go and have a sleep go and go exercise go and do whatever it is you want to do and um, we'll continue this in episode two where I'll be covering the Mount Washington scam. So, yeah, just a forewarning, just be ready to be scream, wise. cry. Yeah, something along the lines of that. It won't be completely disturbing, but disturbing enough that you'll just want to throw some stuff. So, yeah, um, don't electrocute anyone. That's the, um, I think, the takeaway from this episode. Don't electrocute anyone. And don't listen to a man in a white lab coat. Unless it happens to be Bill Nye, the science guy, because he's always right. So, um, yes, this was fun, and we'll see you in episode two. Goodbye. Bye.